Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. We're really excited to have our next guest, a gentleman by the name of Christian Anschwartz. He is the Chief Digital Officer of Underwriter Laboratories in Northbrook, Illinois. Hello, good afternoon, good morning. You know, Christian, you know, I got to know you through mutual friends and actually part of my introduction to you is how I met Shelly, our co-host. So I think you have a really amazing background and, uh, you know, being a Marine officer, an entrepreneur, corporate executive, college graduate, and an American citizen. All those are, those, those are all great things, aren't they? We're, we're all quite blessed. And uh, I guess I'm, uh, my cup overfloweth. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's a unique collection of titles, labels, whatever we want to put those on. Obviously, some a little bit more core to your DNA than maybe some of the others. But I, I think I, I know you well enough to say that core of who you are is is the same regardless of title or position. But if you could walk us through how you've checked all those boxes, give us a little background of your history and, and the journey you, you've been on and how you've gotten to where you are. Well, that's a a big question and a tall order. So I'll try not to spend too much time talking about me. I I would start with a, you know, maybe the last thing you said was one of the most important things, you know, American citizen is is a byproduct of that. Uh, Myself, like so many of us have been, I've just been very much blessed. I've had the opportunity to get a good education, uh, primary and then secondary. I had an opportunity to serve our country as a United States Marine. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, exit the service of our of our nation and then uh, start a company that uh, was really quite successful and and uh, I owned it for almost twenty years before uh, disposing of it so to speak and uh, and then I you know while I owned it some some of it was uh, you know I was solely an entrepreneur but then at some point I wanted to do both and I entered the uh, ranks of corporate America starting you know really in earnest with a, a very large communication company uh, advertising marketing and media that was publicist group really a great advertising company in so many ways and then um, I decided that I needed to work for another company that was more sort of mission and purpose built uh, and that's when I went to UL and then you know now I'm here I'm talking to uh, great people uh, like yourselves and uh, feel very lucky to just be able to have a conversation like this as you made these choices you know uh... You know, when you're going through life, everything looks chaotic and kind of haphazard. But when you look back on it, it almost looks like there was a purpose. Is that something that when you look back, is that starting to hold true with like some of these things make more sense in the rearview mirror than they do looking forward? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's it's funny as you ask that. So if I go back to uh, the time I spent in the Marine Corps, I spent a couple, you know, quite a bit of time, eight years active duty two two active duty tours. And uh, one of the things you know when you're in the military and you get to experience it firsthand in the military and sort of epic glory, so to speak, is that, that no plan survives its first contact with the enemy. That's a, a very famous quote from Clausewitz, and it's also very, very true. And it's true not just for the military. It's true for corporate America. So you can think you can plan out your life. And, uh, and, and maybe, you know, having goals is a good idea, but having plans, in my opinion, that's actually a pretty poor idea. Because when you have plans, you don't really know how to take advantage of that next opportunity that just kind of you never even thought of, but yet presents itself. 
And, and so that's been my life. I mean, I've just kind of looked at, you know, I've done a thing and then I just kind of survey, I think I'm going to head towards this goal. And then, wow, this great opportunity uh, pops up. And then with a little bit of courage, because candidly, there's been a lot of fear throughout my career, just like, oh, should I do this? Should, you know, should I get out of the Marine Corps and start my own company? I mean, that, you know, what was my background in that? And I just said, yeah, you know, why not? Because there seems to be a very specific opportunity here. And, uh, and it works out. It almost always works out. And, and um, even if you, uh, you know, it works out less optimally, you still learn a lot. And, you know, in the net sum of things, you benefit from your experiences and you take these different and winding paths. So I could never imagine or planned out uh, this, this life and this career. And, and candidly, I never would have wanted to. And I'm perfectly happy. And as I said at the onset, feel very lucky to be uh, where I'm at doing what I'm doing and, and as even to this point and this exact moment having this conversation. You're absolutely right. It is, you got to leave open the chance for the magical, right? For the opportunities, the unexpected. And, and I think quite a few entrepreneurs and visionaries that I speak to, I think they, they're frustrated at times with that concept of like, I need to have stronger follow through. Uh, it's a conversation I had with a, a really smart person just this morning was, not understanding that that action orientation of like, I'm going to do a thing. I don't know how it works out, but I'm going to make it through. So it's, I do think that's an important thing to remember is people are, are going through this journey of trying to become an entrepreneur or a visionary that you don't know how it's going to end, uh, but you just to keep going. Yeah. You got to have some faith and confidence, right? And, uh, and you have to have, again, some courage because there's almost always a certain amount of trepidation. We don't want to use the word fear, but, you know, my belief is that the fear is the one overwhelmingly most prevalent um, emotion in the human sort of, you know, toolkit, if you will. And, uh, and so we need some courage and we need to, um, you know, take advantage of these opportunities, even though we're not 100% sure how they're going to turn out. So Christian, speaking of courage and fear, can you share with us what it was like transitioning out of being a Marine officer to then becoming an entrepreneur to then going into the corporate world? Yeah, it's a good question. Thank you, Shelley. I mean, transitioning out of the military, you know, if you're in the military, uh, you may know this, uh, you know, the, the challenges. If you got out of the military, you definitely know the challenges. And if you don't know anything about the military, then this doesn't seem like a big deal. You just change jobs, except for it's it's... It's a lot different than that. And, and, and different branches of the military uh, are a little bit different than the others in many ways. But getting out of the Marine Corps is a rather interesting challenge because when you're leaving the military, again, I'll speak from the Marine Corps perspective, uh, and, it, and this is probably true to various degrees for the other branches. But when you get out of the Marine Corps, so much of what you leave behind, uh, you know, you think, you're, you think you're leaving behind, you know, having to wear a uniform. Uh, doing tough duties, being deployed and away from your friends and family and, and uh, you know, things, things like that, sort of the obvious things. But what you don't realize that you're leaving behind are actually the things that you value the most. And it's one of those really funny things. And maybe it's sort of the root of the, that quote, you know, the grass is always greener. But when you, leave the, when you leave the Marine Corps, what most people struggle when they leave the Marine Corps is leaving behind, you know, the sense of camaraderie, brother and sisterhood, a deep and profound and meaningful uh, level of trust with the people that you work with and that you are accountable to and that are accountable to you. And then when you leave that and you become much more isolated on the outside, uh, because I've done both, right? I've been uh, in the Marine Corps for a couple tours and, and I've been uh, uh, in the private sector for a couple more than that. And you know, there's nothing in the, the private sector that 
even comes close to the level of sort of camaraderie and esprit and, and trust uh, that you have when you're in, in, in the military. And, and those, those, those feelings, those emotions are incredibly addictive. And when you have them and you lose them, it's actually very difficult. People say, oh, it's because I can't translate that I was infantry into a corporate job. It's much less about that. It's more about being unable to translate how I like to work, how I like to work with people, how I love and, and need to be part of a team, a team of people that you know trust and, and back one another up. And I don't know how to handle it when I don't have that. And very specifically for me, that's why I started my own company. Because I, I got out of the Marine Corps and I immediately got a corporate job. And I was like, what the heck is all this about? What, what is, what's going on with people? They don't seem to care about one another. Um, they seem very much uh, sort of self-interested. Common goals were something that people spoke about, but never really truly acted uh, on, uh, you know, with the level of same level of passion and vigor. And I said, well, God, this just, this isn't for me. So I started my own company. And when I had built that up in, in about 12 months to 15 people, uh, then I had my small unit back of people that, you know, really cared about one another, really trusted one another, and, and really were so high performing and excellent because of those two things. And, and when you're not, when you're not in those environments, you miss them. And, uh, that's a long answer to your question, but that transition, uh, the, the transitioning out of the military is a real problem, but it's a real problem in ways that most people don't realize, even the military members themselves. So Christian, thank you for that. Um, when you had your own business, were you able to bring in veterans? And obviously you could write your own script. You could create um, that culture of, of trust and camaraderie. Uh, what was that like? And then also at UL, how have you helped veterans transition into your organization? Well, let me say something before I, I give an answer. First of all, this, this level of trust and esprit, if you will, it's not unique to the military. It's just that, that, that those, the military, especially in the Marine Corps, maybe the Army and the Navy as well, maybe the Air Force, I'm unsure. It, it creates environments where you have to trust. Failure to trust is disastrous, right? So, um, but it's, it doesn't make this, this high level of trust sort of the sole purview of the military. I want to make that clear because I don't think military members have it better than non-military members. We all have the same needs and we all rise to that same occasion given the opportunity. And so then let me get to the answer to the question. When I uh, started to build this, uh, this company, yeah, I did hire some veterans. I hired, uh, I had three veterans on my team of 15 and the rest were non-veterans. And they were all like the, uh, they were all still part of almost like that same tribe. And I know the word tribe is maybe not the, the best word that people, uh, you know, understand or whatnot. I encourage everybody to read Sebastian Younger's uh, book on the subject. Uh, it's a great book, and that's it, that's influenced why I use that word. Uh, but we, we, you know, we had a group of people that was mostly non-veteran and veterans that had this this higher level of esprit. It wasn't the same as being in the, in a, in a um, combat unit in in the Marine Corps at all, and yet it was such a higher level of trust and camaraderie, brother and sisterhood, if you will. That uh, you know, even to this day, people that I haven't worked with in twenty years say that was the best sort of work environment they've ever been in. Uh, and, and, and I would, you know, I'd candidly echo that, you know, post-military uh, career. As far as, uh, you know, bringing in veterans for UL, I mean, the, the thing I can tell you about UL is UL is very much committed to diversity and inclusion. And then I, I would put it this way, UL is very interested in just hiring the best people and the most sort of broad-based set of perspectives that they can, because then it, when you have these diverse perspectives, these multifaceted perspectives, you build the best teams, right? 
And uh, UL is committed to that. And, and so UL does a number of different things, which includes, of course, hiring veterans. And, and they take advantage of a number of different channels to do that. And they have, in the past, uh, supported a, a nonprofit that uh, I, I started with a couple other people called Project Relo. Uh, but, you know, as a company goes, I don't think you could find a better, more inclusive company uh, or one that's working on being ever better and more inclusive than a company like UL. For people who don't, aren't familiar with Underwriter Laboratories, uh, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has seen the logo on some device in their home. Uh, it's an organization that uh, their mission is to uh, prevent fatalities, uh, minimize damage. Uh, so any product that you're using generally has a small circle and a UL symbol on the back of it, meaning that some of the folks that Christian works with has put that through a battery of tests to make sure that when it gets to your home, it won't start a fire, won't create damage, anything like that. So you touched on mission before. And as you're, as you're changing your role from CIO to chief digital officer and understanding the mission of underwriter laboratories or UL, and actually growing up, one of my neighbors was uh, one of the pyrotechnicians there, <laughs> understanding how much they value their mission, their purpose. Is that what drew you to UL as well? Yeah. So it's funny you ask that. So, you know, I'm kind of a mission-based person. I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted to serve. I wanted to, I wanted to, I felt very fortunate to be a, an American and I felt like it was my duty to, you know, sort of give back to America. And, and so service, which ran in uh, my family, my, my father was a, uh, was in the Navy. My, uh, my family's a gold star family. We lost my brother uh, to his, uh, to service when he was an officer in the army. And, uh, and yet, you know, when I finished uh, the Marine Corps and I thought I was done with that service and, and I was doing a number of different things, I, I ended up working, as I mentioned for, uh, in, in earlier, for an advertising company. And I, as interesting of a business as that is, and it really is an interesting business, it didn't have the mission and the purpose that I, I, I found myself looking for. And uh, so something had happened uh, that precipitated me leaving. Uh, I quit the job uh, simply because I had a realization that I was probably you know, in the wrong place. And, uh, and I started looking about and I said, you know, what kind of, what kind of company do I want to work for? You know, something that a company that wants to make a difference in the world, do something, not just to, you know, for shareholders, but for society. And I looked at education, you know, I looked at a number of different places because there's no downside to educating people, at least in my opinion. And, uh, and, and I stumbled on this company that's mission is about safety, sustainability, and security for all humanity. And I'm like, that's an interesting company I need to learn more about. And so I just kind of went in pursuit of that company. I found that they had a, uh, a CIO position open and I said, oh, I can, I can do that job. And, uh, you know, I've been there for 10 years now. So when it comes to mission, and I think about uh, your mission with regards to UL and you're taking uh, their over a hundred year old organization started after the Chicago fire really founded in that concept of like making sure that doesn't occur again. You're looking at a hundred year old organization that specializes and forgive me if I'm casting this wrong and doing it on with intention uh, of reducing risk, right? That that's what your organization does is make sure that it minimizes risk, risk inside the home. You know, how do you as, as chief digital officer bring innovation to this culture where what you do for others is to minimize their risk? How do you still, step into that zone of potential failure of risk 
when the organization's objective is to minimize it? Or is that just not, am I totally off? Well, no, I actually, I think you're totally on uh, in, in some ways. Um, it's a good question. Let me elaborate. Uh, first thing I would say is my job isn't innovation. We, we have, most people think UL is a, uh, some people think it's a, a government uh, agency. Some people think it's still a nonprofit. Um, and some people think it's still underwriters laboratories. Just a, a bit of a background on it. The, the company is a very, very healthy, multi-billion-dollar private enterprise. Uh, it is very, very global. Uh, we reside in uh, just under sixty uh, uh, countries in terms of our footprint and service well into the hundreds of of countries uh, across the globe. And our and again, our mission is safety, sustainability, and security for all societies. And and to do that, we do a number of different things. And we, as you said, we test things. And our history around the Chicago fires, right? By the way, we're turning 125 years this uh, this year, so we've we're, we've been around for a little bit. You know, we 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 specialize in fire and shock, right? We we were born from the from the innovation of electricity because it was electricity you know, that, that was the cause and the root cause, rather, of a lot of fires. And so our our history is one of moving with innovation. Every time one of our customers, say a, I don't know. Um, uh, a phone manufacturer innovates a new thing, a new spectrum, a new you know uh, capability, or your refrigerator now becomes an IoT device, etc. We have to move with those innovations. So we're you know we're fourteen thousand people you know worldwide, and in so many ways they're all innovators because they follow the innovations of our sixty-five to seventy thousand customers that are our manufacturers. And uh, so my job isn't to innovate. Uh, we, we have people that do that all over the company. My job is to help kind of bring the innovations together and, and kind of help ease them into the market in such a way that we can use our innovations, not our customers, our innovations uh, around um, our mission and our purpose. So again, my job is to help channel it, help even create markets for it, and then help create solutions for new markets that are in line with the pillars of our mission and purpose. And to that point is, you know, create new markets, uh, taking advantage of, of the digital economy. What is the biggest challenge that you, you faced while you're transitioning into this role from, from that CIO position to understanding? And CIO clearly is a much more strategic position more now than ever. Uh, but obviously, it's not as outwardly focused as what it sounds like your position is now. Is that true? Is, did I get that correct? Well, in our context, that's correct. I mean, I was a CIO at the Publicist Group as well. Typically, your CIOs are more internally focused, they, or at the very least, they have a large internal focus, right? Like you have to keep, for example, the systems that run the company continuing to run the company. And I'm not talking about just financial systems or customer management systems or fulfillment systems. I'm just I'm talking about the things that make the company run and run efficiently and effectively. And the CIO usually has responsibilities for those. And it's actually a very interesting conundrum because the, one of the reasons why incumbents have such a hard time beating and, and defeating uh, new entrants and disruptors in their market is because we ask our incumbents or the incumbents ask themselves rather to almost be like, have multiple personalities. I got to be a good operator. I got to continue to grow my business at 5% and I got to be, I got to, you know, continue to increase the value of what I do and I got to continue to grow my market and that's what I'm doing. Boom. And that is a full-time job. Okay. And on the other hand, we're also saying, Hey, you know, there's new innovations. There's new disruptive forces. There's all this new stuff out there. By the way, you have to do all that too 
And not only do you have to have, meet the numbers for today, you have to eat tomorrow. So you better think about how you're going to disrupt yourself before someone else does. And when we ask our people on the ground, whether it's uh, you know people that run our businesses or CEOs of companies, and you ask them to do those two things simultaneously, they struggle, right? And the CIO is the same way because you can't be that. It's very, very difficult to be a CIO who has to do all the internal sustaining of the business while fundamentally disrupting the same business that they're supporting. And so in our case, what we said is, hey, there's a CIO job that's going to be really focused on making sure that we protect our information systems. We operate with all the right controls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, everything the CIOs do. And then we need somebody who's going to help us really transform the business in such a way that uh, you know, we'll go and, and not only live into, but thrive into our second century of existence. And the one thing we can tell you for sure is our next century of existence is going to be highly technologically driven. Right. Even even lemonade stands now are using technology. Right. And you can bet a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar enterprise like ours is as well. We already are and we intend to do a lot more. And so our CIO focuses on one half of the technological paradigm and I focus on sort of the other half, if you will. And some of those lemonade stands, not only are they using technology, they're highly effective, uh, very efficient and profitable. But like many organizations are trying to refresh their forces, right? Bringing in the right people. Is that something you're looking for when you're looking out at people? Are you looking for some of those more entrepreneurial resources as well? You know, I, I don't think I've ever hired somebody and because I said, oh, hey, you're an entrepreneur, so you're, you're perfect for the role. Uh, I, I think when I, when I get involved in the hiring, I'm really looking for sort of the substance of a person's character. You know, HR spends a lot of time using automated systems that, you know, quickly screen through all the keywords to make sure they can find those real, you know, the technical match, right? That this person knows this process or this technology comes from this industry. And after it sifts through the thousands and then it lends a small subset in the hands of the person, the average HR person, you know, Shelly, I don't know what your thoughts are and I'd love to hear them, but they spend about you know, eight seconds per CV to then say, oh, okay, so this is one. So the machine does a lot, the human does some, and then, you know, the, the, the hiring managers, you know, pick through the, you know, the scraps. And I think that system's terrible. I think it's terrible because the, the, the thing we really need to focus on is finding, it goes back to this whole building those teams around uh, common vision, common purpose, common values, and common character. And you've got to find people that you, you you have a chemistry with, that you can trust because they're trustworthy, that have the right ethics, that have the right belief systems, and often not the right perspectives, but the right amount of diversity of perspectives so that they can help add that je ne sais quoi, that sort of extra chemistry to the team that makes it so that you don't ever suffer a groupthink type of mentality. You know, I, I look for people that have character uh, more than any kind of hard skills. I, I, you know, the hard skills to me are just... Anybody with character can pick up most hard skills. I'm not talking about brain surgery here, for example, but, you know, in the typical corporate <laughs> environment, um, you know, you can pick up the, an industry pretty easily. I, I look at these industries that struggle that, you know, are sort of a, a backwater of innovation. And, and you see this in so many different industries and you watch how they hire you know, the same person from that industry moves from one company to the next company, the next company. And these headhunting executive search firms, you know, have their Rolodex mm -hmm. of the same person they move from this, you know, company to that company over time. And then they wonder why there's no real change. Yeah. And, and one thing we can tell you at UL, and this is part of our diversity and inclusion from the perspective of bringing people with different perspectives. And that includes people that come from different backgrounds 
in every uh, dimension to include, you know, skill, industry, et cetera. Couldn't agree with you more, Christian. Yeah. In our company, we look for the three attributes that have made us the most successful and that's trust, bias for action and entrepreneurial. So uh, that's what we use as our criteria when we're bringing folks in. Those are three good criteria, Shelley. I'm glad to hear that. That's great. And do you think that we're at the advent of where it's turning, where trust is really your only market viability because there's so much transparency on a digital platform that you can't get away with things anymore that, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, you know, you're asking uh, the wrong guy. So I'll just disclose my bias. I mean, trust is the, like the most essential ingredient to every relationship from an individual relationship to relationships within and across teams. And then even in the, in, in commerce. And yet that said, there are certain uh, examples. We only have to look at say, for example, social media where trust has been utterly violated. And yet because uh, of uh, human behaviors and patterns and let's call it habits, we continue to do things uh, even though we've failed to trust the, the ones we do them with. I think there's two things. I think we've, as a society, have lost uh, sight of the fact that trust is something that is essential and it's something that we're also individually and collectively responsible for. It just, it's not magic. You build trust and you, <laughs> there's ways to do it. And, uh, and we've kind of forgotten about that. Like for example, keeping your word that, <laughs> you know, the first step in building trust is to be say trustworthy, but you know, that, is, that aside, trust is the, is, is an essential ingredient to good commerce, to building good businesses. When you can be trusted to live to your brand promise, you know, let's say BMW, BMW promised to sell you only the ultimate driving machine, right? That was their promise, their brand promise. And then you wonder, do they still do that? Mm -hmm. Do they still live by that promise? And if they don't, what have been the result of sales issues with them? Are they still the leader in that space? Or are they now a fast follower? I don't have a BMW. I'm not criticizing them. But they're one of the classic studies of what happens when a company lose sight of what its promise is. And when you lose sight of the promise, you lose the trust of the, the, the customers, and then you have a potential issues. Again, I, I'm not saying BMW is anything other than a great company. But you have to uh, understand what your promise is, and you have to live up to that. And in the end, trust is going to make every company better. So we better work really, really hard in doing what we say we're going to do. And when we screw up, which happens in every you know company with every person, be transparent about it. Be radically transparent about it, and then uh, correct yourself because you know people trust challengers. You challenged AB. Uh, electronics because the guy could have sold you something and he challenged you and basically said, Hey, Hey, uh, knucklehead, you probably didn't measure this, right? It doesn't sound right or whatever. Go back. Right. And he challenged you. You could have just hit submit on your credit card right there and been done. And he sent you your utility room with the measuring tape. And instead of disliking that and saying, you know, mm -hmm. forget this company, you said, no, I'm going to continue to do business with them because they challenged you and you can trust a well-intentioned challenger uh, even more than sometimes you can trust a well-intentioned yes person. At the risk of going too far in one direction, but I, there was an article that you shared on LinkedIn the other day, the ver difference between trust and loyalty. And I, I thought that was a really interesting and important differentiator. And I think you touched on it right there of like, you know, finding syncophants and followers who, you know, stand behind you and cheer maybe aren't the people who, who are really helping you elevate yourself to the next level. Is that what you were getting at with the concept of challenge? Well, a lot of people, you know, especially again in corporate environments, they're looking for people that'll be loyal to them. 
And that can be okay. Uh, loyalty is fine, but loyalty and trust are not the same thing. Loyalty is the byproduct of trust. And now you can buy loyalty. Let's be very clear. That happens all the time, but absent sort of a compensation around it, loyalty is a byproduct of, of, of trust. And so we should start with building trust within our individual relationships within and across our teams and with our customers. And there's, again, there's a number of things we can do and we have to do what we say we're going to do. We have to be transparent when we deviate, you know, this idea of integrity, which is one thing that really drew me to UL. It is a pillar of our company. And because of our independence as a third party, we are so strict about that. And you have to be very, very firm in upholding what you say your values are. And if you were to make a mistake, be very, very clear in that, because if you don't, you erode trust and heck, you can even destroy it almost overnight. I mean, you know, it doesn't take much. It can take a viral video about, you know, you breaking guitars or something like that, right? That's what I was thinking is like the imminent doom of breaking that trust is so quick and complete that it's got to be. So as you are leading the charge at UL and creating that awareness with clients and things like on that kind of platform, you know, what was one of the biggest challenges, I guess, for, for our listening audience? They're trying to find out and learn from your experience. What are some of the things that you saw that you said, hey, here's the opportunity or here's the risk, you know, for us to take this well-established pillar organization to that next level? What was one of the big things when you took that role that you're saying, hey, this is what I've got to do? Well, there's, there's a number of them. You know, our mission and our purpose is truly global in nature. And, and as a company, we have the opportunity to help societies all over the world. And we have uh, a tremendous opportunity to do that. And that, that was something that uh, was fascinating to me. And then uh, in addition to sort of like that, that scale of from a sort of a market scale perspective, there's also the ability for us to take what we do and use technological mechanisms, if you will, to really kind of give us the, the voice of our, our leadership in engineering, our leadership in science, and give it a technological megaphone so that it not just scales across more markets, but it also scales uh, more deeply into the realm of, of safety. I mean, think of how big that term safety is. I mean, can you really be safe if you can't even swipe your credit card without fear of someone, you know, electronically snooping your, your pin? I mean, how big does that word safety get? And so we have um, those two huge opportunities to scale and to, to, to spread into more markets more deeply and then to provide more deeper and um, uh, richer services uh, to more people by simply, again, amplifying the voice of our people that lead uh, in the uh, areas of engineering and science. And, and so my job is really to figure out how I find that blend of, of human machine to do those two things. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, set of challenges, but entirely worth it because the opportunity is uh, almost beyond our, our ability to comprehend right now. That's an interesting perspective when you think about it. I'm, I have uh, front door locks that I'm putting on this weekend that are, they're smart, I can connect them with the internet and uh, being of a certain age, that gives me a certain level of concern, but I don't think that's a concern many people share. And it's, it's a great point. So when you look at, you know, the digital keys to our lives are significantly more at risk than the physical keys, right? So somebody robbing my house is significantly lower than somebody stealing my identity and creating credit cards. Is that the big opportunity that you're looking at at UL and saying, this is, this is the meaningful things we can do to fulfill the mission of UL? 
Well, that's a, that's an example of it. Sure. I mean, I, you know, again, you, with one of the things that we're seeing is the convergence of, well, like everything. I mean, you know, that washer that you were going to get from AB uh, Electronics probably was IoT, right? You're just talking about a lock, right? Where you got you got a code, you can open it up with your, you know, remotely and whatnot. And maybe you know this or maybe you don't, but it's, it's actually pretty much child's play now to hack into a lot of cars by having two people, uh, one person that snoops the electronic signal from the, the key fob that's inside the house. The other person then has another device that then relays that to the car and then boom, you're in the car. You don't even touch it and you break into it. And I would tell you this as a company, I mean, UL does some, so many fascinating things and some of them are actually a lot of fun. So, you know, here's a little tidbit. If you buy any safes around here, you know, and just say in the United States, you're always going to find a UL certification on a safe. I mean, almost always, I would think. The safes I own all have UL certifications and they have two designations. One is how long is the safe's contents protected in case there's a fire around the safe? And then another one, which is how hard is it to break into the safe? And so we have some of the world's very best safe crackers because that's what we do, right? And I would say that it's very, very possible that we've opened up safes without ever touching them, you know, these new electronic safes. And, and, and so is that an issue of safety and security for you if someone could do that to your front door and not trigger an alarm? In fact, what if they could do that and disable your alarm? I mean, what does that mean to you in terms of your safety and uh, security? And these you need companies like UL to make these systems work in the way that they were intended and that they that these technologies do more good than harm because there's often unintended consequences associated with the introduction of new technologies or the convergence of technologies. So Christian, I want to switch gears just a little bit. I'm very curious who you've had throughout your career as a mentor, whether that was while you were in the military or uh, once you're in the corporate world. Uh, you know, it's a good question. I've been asked this a few times, and and I have a, I have one mentor that I had when I was in the Marine Corps, and I had one mentor outside the Marine Corps. And the one in the Marine Corps was this Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Gary Barthold, and he was. Uh, there's a lot to learn from this gentleman, and he was uh, somebody I, I you know carried with me, and to this day continue to carry with me some of the lessons that he taught me. And then I had a, a corporate mentor who was a, a boss who was less of a positive mentor, but I kind of glummed onto that person because I said, okay, this is, there are some things I can learn positively, but I can learn as many really important lessons that are sort of more negative in, in a way. Besides that, what I would tell you is this, there are people that can be mentors and, and that's different than a sponsor. So I'm thinking just about mentorship. I find that the the people I work with and, and often hierarchically, and I, I'm not a big hierarchy person at all, I learn more and almost get more mentorship from the people that on my teams than I do from the, my peer group, so to speak, because there's so much to learn from, again, it's that diversity of ex experience, it's that diversity of background, it's that diversity of, of, you know, age in many cases. I mean, I learn a lot from my children. Yeah. And uh, while they don't technically rise to the definition of mentorship, if we were just to take a broader brush and say, you know, who do you learn the most from? who has helped shape you the most, it would actually be members of my teams as opposed to any sort of typical mentor, that professor or boss or senior leader somewhere. And, uh, and I think I'm a little bit different in that regard because it's, uh, I think most people will find that sort of position, that person of sort of positional power and influence as a mentor. And I, I find uh, most of my lessons I learned from 
you know, people that don't have that positional power and influence. That's really interesting and, and kind of funny because I, I just uh, met with a woman last week who said, Shelly, I don't know how to ask you this, but I'd like you to be my mentor. And I said, actually, I thought you were mine. <laughs> and she's uh, significantly younger in her career. And I learned much more from her than I ever thought I could could give back. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. You know, the, the one thing that we all have to do is we have to take our lessons from wherever we get them. And we have to be uh, absolutely unafraid not, no words, not unafraid. We just have to take the lessons from wherever we get them and be humble. Mm-hmm. Humility is the most important thing. And if you can't be humble, I think a, a lack of humility is the number one barrier to learning. Agreed. You know, and it, one of the things when we're interviewing people, it is that self-teacher we're looking for, right? So people who are constantly not beating themselves up, but reviewing their behaviors and looking for feedback and having as uh, Professor Dwork calls that growth mindset, right? Where a mistake isn't the end of the world. It's not a judgment of you as a person. And that's something that's always struck me about you, Christian, as, as we've gotten to know each other, is that you do engage a very large and diverse group of people uh, through the various things that you do, including Project Relo, which is uh, where I met both of you. Uh, and so... Project Relo, for uh, those who don't know, is an organization that's committed to creating awareness of the value of uh, transitioning military. Christian, you would obviously, uh, you're the founder. Could you tell us a little bit about your mission there and what you're doing with that group? Project Relo is is an organization. It's a, it's a nonprofit. It is a veteran cause. And it's a, I always start by saying it's a very, very different veteran cause. And, and this is a cause uh, that is designed to help not veterans transition as much as corporate America understand the value, the capabilities and the quality, that character, if you will, of our transitioning military members, because otherwise the conversations are kind of one-sided. It's like, Hey, veterans, you know, you got to dress this way. You got to write your resume in this way, by the way, you know, go ahead and, you know, try and apply for this job. And because it's more one-sided nature and because of some of those HR practices that we talked about earlier, corporate America doesn't make that leap towards the center of the table of that dialogue, so to speak, and do their part. And so what Project Relo does is we educate corporate leaders, senior leaders on the value, the quality and the character, the real capabilities of men and women, uh, you know, coming out of the military. And, and we open their eyes to why they should hire these people, not as a social good, but simply because it's, it's very, very good business to have that kind of perspective, those kind of soft skills, and that those mentalities that veterans often have within their organizations. So that's, that's the, the why of it. The how of it is actually really fun. It's different and it is innovative. And when we and so many of my teams, we really do like to take the roads less traveled. And instead of, you know, doing, you know, banners and, you know, all the different sort of traditional methods and, and whatnot to sort of educate people, we do it differently. We do it very immersively. We take these senior executives out. Uh, through partnership with the United States Army and the Department of Defense. And we take them out on multi-day military field exercises on military bases. And we take them through these these field exercises and these field operations over a three and four day period. And they are taught how to, you know, how the military operates. And they're taught this by transitioning military members and veterans themselves. And what they get out of it is a true appreciation of the soft skills and the things that make veterans so important or potentially important within uh, an organization's uh, workforce. So that's what Project Reload is about. I, I encourage everybody to look it up, projectreload.org. Uh, it's, it's an incredible uh, experience. And, uh, you know, I'll turn the tables on you. I mean, what did you get out of it? 
what did you get out of it and what did you experience? I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm biased. I, I helped start the thing. What is, you know, two people that went through it, what did you get out of it? Oh, I guess I would say that uh, what I got out of it was it's a great opportunity to engage with other really interesting, uh, a diverse set of not just executive leaders, but also people who are transitioning from the military and understanding that there's a diversity there as well. I think for people who have not served or been involved or have family members that were in the military, I think sometimes it looks like they're carbon copies and they're forced to become this very uh, one-dimensional identity. As a leader, I think I learned a ton. As you mentioned before, I think the the military has taken what has what they've learned over thousands of years of humanity becoming perfect teams and what we as as pack animals and how we survived and why we are the apex predator is that we have this ability to team and work and share and share the load is a, a big concept. And obviously uh, the American military has harnessed what is our natural abilities. And obviously when you see how much effort they put into leadership development and as a person who's never served and a person who has been in corporate America and I've been an entrepreneur, but at the same point in time, I see a complete lack of investment in leadership in corporate America and civilian leadership where it's really what I think is the future and why I think there's real value in what you're doing is that for America to stay dominant, we have to regain that position of we create leaders, not just technicians. And I think there's too much focus on becoming technically proficient, especially in the technology industry where I live, where people are celebrated for their technical abilities and then elevated based upon that, not because they are good leaders or good managers, which obviously are completely different things. But I do think it's creating that awareness of like, I don't want to say I, I hate the word servant leader. Uh, I just think it gets misused and it focuses too much on the servant side and not on the leadership side. You know, you, your job isn't to be a servant to the people who you intend to lead only, right? You still have to lead them and have expectations and then hold them to that accountability and then ask them to elevate. And my wife is a teacher. I've, I've learned a ton from her too, as well, from you can't lead if you can't teach, especially now where how rapidly people are ascending to new levels that you should expect that the people you're hiring are significantly not prepared for the role that you're hiring them for. And so I, I do think each mission that I've been on, I carry something home, whether it's after action reviews, which was uh, the last one, or really culture development and how to do that in a very, everything is turning digital, but there's some things that still need to be tangible things you can touch, things that you can see, feel. And I think uh, Project Reload does a great job of reminding us. And as leaders, it's it's taught me some some skills as to how to create that culture, create a tribe, create that group of people, and then use these things, these physical elements to reinforce that. So, so I didn't get much at all. <laughs> well, that's a lot and uh, quite uh, humbled to hear you say that. How about you, Shelley? Uh, a lot of people think that a lot of this field stuff is, uh, you know, more oriented towards uh, men, not realizing how much of our military is both women and men. And, and certainly Project Relo is oriented towards women and men. And, uh, you know, so you were a member of uh, an alumni of Relo and actually serve on the board. Uh, what do you uh, what did you get out of it? 
Yeah, you know, I had a mentor in my career who said life is about experiences. And I will say once you experience this, it will change you forever. Um, as you mentioned earlier, Christian, really understanding the character and capabilities of our transitioning men and women is something that I learned on the trip, as well as just um, getting that close personal bond with the folks. You're in it together. You're learning together. You're uh, you're having this experience together. So uh, certainly builds trust uh, and, again, helps you understand kind of the narrative to take back to your organization to really understand how hiring uh, transitioning military leaders can elevate your business. And you mentioned it earlier, it's not just about diversity and inclusion, it's about hiring the best of the best of the best to make your business successful. So I was excited to bring that back just from a human resources and talent perspective. But personally, I just, I got so much out of that trip and it has forever changed me. Uh, again, that that's uh, when we hear this actually quite a bit where people say it, it was a, a life impacting experience. And it's not just because it's, you're learning about former military members or uh, soon to be former military members. It's it's because you learn a lot about yourself. And every time I hear that, you know, it changed my life or it fundamentally impacted me. I, you know, I feel, again, incredibly I guess proud and, and, and humble at the same time because it's uh, it's such a thing to say and I appreciate you saying it. So thank you. Awesome. I, I do have one last topic. One thing that we're working in here is uh, so in the movie The Graduate, there's the famous scene of Dustin Hoffman being told the one word, right? That being plastics. I'd like to know what what is if you were in that situation, you were talking to Dustin Hoffman, what would be your one word? Well, again, it only makes sense because of the context of this conversation, but th that word would be trust. You don't have anything at all. You have nothing. If you can't trust yourself, you can't trust people in your, in your family, in your, in, your, in your media vicinity, and you can't trust even like the big institutions like our, our media and our government. And I think the word is trust. And I think we need to own that word and understand how we you know, bring more of it into our lives and take responsibility for it. That's awesome. I couldn't agree more. And I think Shelly would agree as yeah. well. Well, I guess uh, that brings us to the end. Christian, thank you so much. I know you're a super busy guy and I really appreciate that you're able to, to give your time and your experience to our listeners and to this podcast. I'm looking forward to spending another couple of days with you in October on my third mission. So I'll try to make the kickoff meeting on time this time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, make sure you have good footwear. <laughs> and, yeah. and it begins. Christian, it's been an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, truly my pleasure. And it was, a, it was a great to uh, be on this podcast and to support uh, some Project Relo alumni. And that's, uh, if you think about this, the, the arc of this conversation, it's, it is about teams. It is about uh, giving and it's about giving back. And so there was no question, Pat, when you said, hey, would you do a podcast? course, I'm going to say yes, because, you know, you're part of the Project Relo alumni and part of the Project Relo family, both of you. And for that, I thank you. And to your listeners, I thank you for listening. All right. Well, thank you, Shelly, for being my partner in crime again. And thank you listeners for taking the time. I hope you've enjoyed it. We look forward to sharing the next podcast as soon as possible. So thank you. Take care, everyone. And uh, we'll talk soon. And you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.